1: Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. burrow.com slash ACAST.
0: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you
1: Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Afternoon, Jim. This is almost an emergency edition of the podcast, given that we've done one quite recently. But obviously, there's so much going on in the world of financial markets, in the banking world, thanks to not one, but three bank failures in the United States over the last few days. The most prominent of which is this thing called Silicon Valley Bank, which is what we're going to talk about most of all today, but lost in the noise around that and the turmoil. And it is not an exaggeration to say that there is turmoil in financial markets across equities, interest rate and bond markets. There is an awful lot going on, a lot of volatility, big, big rethinks on interest rate forecasts are not the least outcome of all of this as we speak. The headline in the FT's online edition right now is SVB Collapse Forces Rethink on Interest Rates and Hits Bank Stocks. After a bad week for equities last week, at the time of our speaking right now, the US market is not yet open. But German equities are down 3%, UK equities are down 2% and showing all signs of being extremely, extremely nervous about what happens next. And it's worth looking at that FT headl- headline and exploring the story a little bit, particularly when it comes to uh, the all-important government bond market. And the story goes on. Government bond prices soared on Monday. Now, that's for those of you who are not intimate with financial markets. And I know that, that we do have lots of people who are very financially literate and those people who um, are less so. And thankfully, we have both types of listener But government bond prices soared on Monday. That's the equivalent of bond yields going down. The two move inversely to each other, posting some of the biggest rallies since the crisis of 2008 as fund managers ramped up bets that the US Federal Reserve would now leave interest rates unchanged, unchanged at its next scheduled monetary policy meeting. That's a huge change because if we'd had this discussion this time last week, we'd have been talking about Bets that they were far from going up another 25 basis points, another quarter of a point. The Fed was th- going to think about moving up half a point. So, this is huge, huge stuff. Uh, the Europe's banking stock market index fell 7% today so far. And that means that just over the last few days, it's fallen 11%, with 22 banks that are in that index of bank share prices in negative territory. Several banks, according to the FT, suffered double-digit declines. And as a relatively minor, but nonetheless very important indicator of what's going on, one of Europe's more troubled banks, at least from a headline, rumours, story, share price point of view, is a bank called Credit Suisse. It is a giant in European banking, and there's something called credit default swaps. And these are the ways in which people, putting it kindly, take out insurance on a bank, not being able to honour its debts. Uh, Putting it unkindly, it's the way traders bet that a bank will, in some shape or form, get into serious trouble. And those CDS spreads are now at uh, very worrying levels for Credit Suisse. Well, they have been worrying for a time, but they're now at more worrying levels. I've no idea how much trouble Credit Suisse is in, but these are all indicators That we are back into serious trouble in financial markets. The story around SVB does need exploring a little bit to just try and get our heads around what is going on, what is specific to that bank, what it means for the economy, what it means for the financial system, and whether or not we think this is the start of something much bigger, or whether within a few days things will have calmed down. Because the authorities have stepped in on both sides of the Atlantic, In the United States, they tried to find a buyer for SVP, but they failed. In the UK, they have found a buyer for the UK subsidiary of this bank, HSBC. The global banking behemoth has stepped in to take over that. So different regulator responses, all with the same objective, which is essentially to make sure that depositors get their money back. In an echo of the financial crisis of interest to our Irishnessless, you might remember, Jim, that back in the day, there was this big debate about whether or not the bondholders should be burned if a bank goes under. And in their infinite wisdom, the Irish authorities decided, not without a little bit of pressure from Europe, it has to be said, that all bondholders must be made whole. They must get their money back. In the United States, the authorities there have said, nah, bondholders get burned, So that's an interesting departure from what happened last time. Jim, I know you've been looking at this very, very closely. In three bullet points or less, do you want to take us through what your understanding of what has happened to SVB actually is, the mechanics of why this bank actually failed? And then between us, let's try and explore the implications.
2: Silicon Valley Bank, SVB, is an unusual bank in the sense that its primary role in life was to fund and provide services to startup up technology companies. Did that, well, based on its balance sheet, it appears to have done so quite successfully because there's been massive growth in the size of its balance sheet in terms of the deposits it's taken on, in terms of the loans it's granted over the last couple of years, and indeed, the speed with which its balance sheet expanded and the concentration of its business risk in a very specific area of economic activity, you know, should have set alarm bells ringing for regulators, but it didn't. And that's something I think we can get back to um, later on in the podcast. But basically, SVB Bank took in a lot of deposits. At the peak of the technology boom, it had 100, just over a year ago, it had 188 billion dollars on deposit and it decided to invest 91 billion of those in basically bonds, be it mortgage-backed securities or US Treasuries, um, because it believed it would get you know a a reasonable return from these and it was a relatively risk-free thing to do. But of course, over the last 12 months, as the Federal Reserve has increased interest rates from zero to four and a half percent Bond yields have risen strongly and there is an inverse relationship between bond yields and bond prices. So as bond yields increase in value, sorry, as bond yields rose, the value of the bonds declined in value. And if you are holding bonds until maturity, um, you will get your initial investment back. So it's only if you want to exit those bonds before they reach maturity that you will actually materialize those losses. In the case of SVB Bank, there's two things have happened on the liability side of the balance sheet over the last couple of weeks. Well, over some months now, but it's really culminated in the crisis last week. There has been a significant slowdown in venture capital money coming into the tech sector because of the tech difficulties. And secondly, there's been a run on the deposits of SVB Bank. And many reasons are being cited as to why this run occurred. Uh, the collapse of Silvergate, a crypto um, organization, a bank, that you know definitely created a lot of nervousness. But Peter Thiel who is one of the big global venture capitalists, he has what's called a founder's fund. And he advised its his portfolio of companies recently, over recent weeks, to pull their funds out of SVB because he was worried about the liquidity and solvency of that bank. So the bank, SVB Bank, saw a lot of deposits leaving, venture capital flows were starting to dry up. So it then had to sell some of its bonds to try and shore up its balance sheet. And of course, these these bonds had fallen sharply in value. So it announced last week that it had failed to raise new funding. Um, It was going to have to sell bonds, the bonds were going to be worth a lot less, and they would suffer significant financial losses. So this culminated in a situation where the FDIC had to step in, the Federal The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation had to step in and basically shut the bank down on Friday. And one of the big issues for SVB Bank is that generally, the FDIC insurance covers deposits up to 250,000. Okay, that's it. And generally, in most normal banks, that would be roughly 50% of their deposits. But in the case of SVB, 93% of the deposits were not insured. And that meant that depositors really freaked last week and start to take their deposits out of the bank. The same thing happening Signature Bank, a a different organization in New York, uh, very heavily involved in the crypto industry. You know, it had a similar deposit profile where the bulk of its deposits were not insured. So that created a huge vulnerability. But the bottom line here is that um, the sharp increase in interest rates over the last 12 months has really forced the materialisation of the problems we've seen over the last few days. And there's an old saying, um, I think it was Warren Buffett, he said that's only when the tide goes out, you realise who is swimming naked. Um, s and Bank certainly fits the bill in that regard.
1: There are so many threads there that need unpicking, Jim. And in order to try and keep it simple, I think that we need to understand the basic nature of banking, banks take in deposits from various sources, and that's called its funding. It can achieve funding through issuing of bonds, but deposits is is one of the biggest ways. It can issue shares and lend the money out from the proceeds it gets from selling shares. So it's got various ways of raising money that it lends out. The various ways a bank gets funded is called its cost of funds, and the interest rate it charges on the loans when it lends that money out um, is its cost of sales, if you like, or, or the price of its sales and the difference between, between its two, it's its profit margin. And there all sorts of shenanigans have to go on within that very simple scheme that I've just described. And sometimes it can be incredibly complicated, as it was during the financial crisis. That involved banks taking deposit depositors' money and doing really strange, weird and wonderful things via all sorts of derivatives via all sorts of really weird mortgage-backed securities. This bank's not a complicated story. It bought things with deposited, depositors' money that went down in price. Now, ultimately, that's not a problem, because as you rightly said, it will get its money back, more or less, if it holds these things to maturity. But because depositors started taking out their money, there was a problem. And that's the story of all bank runs. If you remember the Jimmy Stewart film, It's a Wonderful Life, with Bedford Falls Savings and Loan. That was a classic bank run where people queued up at the doors to take their money out because they were worried that if they were last in the queue, they wouldn't get their money back. And exactly the same thing has happened to this particular bank, SVB. Bank runs aren't what they used to be, Jim. We don't need to queue up at the door anymore. We can get our money out with a few clicks of a of a mouse. That's one of the new things about modern financial architecture. Another new thing about this is that in the old days, even just going back to something like Northern Rock, we would have had rumors flying around the place in the press on Facebook and things like that. But now electronically generated social media derived rumors are instantaneous and ubiquitous. So one of the things that happened last week is the SVB story was all over social media instantaneously. And everybody was telling everybody else what they were doing. And what they were telling everybody else was, "I'm taking my money out." So that that was a big, big problem. So there are all sorts of new things going on, aligned with this very old-fashioned, very bog-standard, absolutely normal in a historic context. In this, in the way that accidents are historically normal uh, of a bank run, people getting their money out because the fundamental premise of banking is that everybody, if everybody t- tries to take their deposits out, the bank goes under. Now. The fundamental question for me is not so much how this, what, what went on in terms of the mechanics. They bought stuff that went down in price, and then all the depositors tried to get their money back, and there was a huge mismatch. Is how on earth were they allowed to do it? And I think that the answer is already beginning to emerge. There's a story on Bloomberg this morning, which talks about a guy called Greg Becker, chief executive officer of SVB Financial Group. Eight years ago, He delivered, according to Bloomberg, a blunt message to lawmakers in Washington. The bank he runs is not like Wall Street. And he wanted Congress to pass legislation, I'm quoting from Bloomberg here, that would let workers at his firm avoid thousands of hours every year undergoing stress tests and prepping resolution plans. His was a simple lender, not like the globally systemically important banks that regulators should be focused on. Becker said, the evidence is clear that the Dodd-Frank Act's framework for GSIBs is not appropriate for SVB and our peers. Lots of acronyms there, banking jargon. Dodd-Frank was the legislation introduced by the United States in the wake of the financial crisis. Simple story, legislators said, went to the financial system, we're not going to let you do this again. We're going to have our foot on your necks forever in the wake of what you've done to our economies and forcing us to bail you out similar legislation regulatory legislation was passed in Europe and for example the Irish regulator now is all over the financial system in a way that it wasn't prior to the finan- prior to the financial crisis all over the financial system in a very very appropriate way it's absolutely right but what's happened in the united states as these comments from 8 years ago post financial crisis from uh, the ceo of svb and loads of other chief executives and lobbyists representing small and medium-sized banks in the United States in particular, they were saying that all of your attention, Mr. Legislator, should be focused on these systemically important banks, J.P. Morgan and all those sorts of names, not us. Give us a break. Let us do what we want to do. We'll never cause you any trouble. And the legislators bought it. And we're now saying, oh, my God, what's happened the regulator is on record as saying that they've had a light touch approach to these small and medium-sized banks. They've basically allowed them to do what they wanted to do. And the moral of this and every other banking crisis story in history is that if you let banks do what they want to do, they will get us all into trouble because banks historically always, always misbehave. And so I think that the message from all of this Amidst the bad behavior of the executives of SVP, who've all been fired, the shareholders have been wiped out, appropriately so. So these are relatively new things compared to a lot of banks back in the day in the financial crisis. Some good things have happened, some appropriate things have happened today, but it's a failure of regulation. And so one of the things that has to happen is that uh, the regulator now has to get a grip back on these institutions. Whether or not they do so remains to be seen because the actor behind this deregulation of banks eight years ago, guess who it was? It was a president of the United States that you know very well. And his name is Donald Trump. He actually announced from the rooftops his love of this rowing back of regulation. So given that he's on on the comeback trail, I wonder just how much we're going to see re-regulation of the banks But the lesson I take from this, Jim, is that banks are still not fit for purpose and the the financial system is still extremely fragile. And on both sides of the Atlantic, we need to take another look at banking regulation and tighten it even further. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it.
0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: Specifically, Trump's rollback on Dodd Frank in 2018 meant that banks with assets of under $250 billion. Um, were basically immune from the tougher and stricter regulatory supervisory environment that the Federal Reserve creates. So it was basically, as you say, letting all those small banks do whatever they wanted to do. Uh, And of course, um, $250 billion balance sheet. I mean, that would qualify a bank, I think, in about the top 20 in the United States, because I think SVB is... uh, 20th in size in terms of the U.S. banking system. So it we're, we're not just talking about sort of credit unions around the country or the equivalent of, you know, we are talking about significant financial institutions that were basically allowed to do whatever they wanted to do. And I think the one thing we should always learn from history is that I think more than any other sector, the banking industry and bankers are incapable of behaving properly And, you know, when given the leeway, they go berserk. And most uh, crashes in different sectors, like in agriculture here in Ireland, uh, back in the 80s, uh, when there was a huge crisis in agriculture lending, uh, the mortgage crisis that erupted here in 2007, 2008. All of these crises have one thing in common. You know, they're caused in the main by bankers behaving badly. So it is absolutely essential that banking is regulated, and that these this lobbying from various lobby groups um, should be ignored by policymakers. But of course, if you get a president like Donald Trump, who's very sympathetic to a lack of regulation, um, you know it's fair it's fair game that the regulator's role is significantly diminished, and we're now seeing the price of that again. And of course, the prob- problem is, as I said earlier, we have no idea. Um, you know, how many other banks in the system could have similar problems? Well, that's it, Jim, yeah, absolutely. It's it's one thing to say that SVP is a very unique bank in the sense that, you know, it was a very unique type of business model. It had uh, heavily concentrated and as a consequence, very dangerous. Um, You could say the same thing about Signature Bank, but how many other banks out there are like that. That is the real problem. And it, it's interesting, I think, the as this story unfolded over the weekend, the gravity and the potential consequences of this banking collapse started to really, really move up the um, agenda. And we've seen um, the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, uh, basically tell the FDIC that all depositors will be covered in the event of a bank problem. That is to prevent a run of non-insured deposits from the general banking system. The Federal Reserve has also put um, a special funding mechanism in place to help banks experiencing liquidity problems. I mean, in terms of what happened, SVP, uh, you know, in a banking crisis generally, there's typically one of two things can happen. One is that you have a solvency problem, the value of the assets falls heavily and suddenly your balance sheet, um, you basically become insolvent from a balance sheet perspective. The other type of crisis is a liquidity crisis, where basically the way in which you fund your bank or your company generally um, starts to become problematical. And with SVP, SVB bank, it is a combination of the two. Uh, There was a problem on the liquidity side in the sense that depositors, Of non-insured deposits were started to withdraw. um, And there was a significant reduction, as I said earlier, in the inflow of deposits into the system through the venture capital industry. And on the balance sheet side, um, the collapse in the value of US treasuries over the last 12 months creates a serious solvency problem. So it's it's a combination of a liquidity and a solvency crisis for the bank, but the Mm -hmm. net result
1: it's gone. It's always an illustration of how a liquidity crisis can become a solvency crisis yes. if you let it run hard enough and long enough. There are so many strands to this, Jim, that we frankly could have a two-hour podcast or a podcast every day about this, but there's a couple I want to pick up on. Uh, there's um, uh, a story during the rounds this morning about ESG. Now, you know that ESG is big in investing circles. That's environmental, social, and governance investing in which investors are being asked, being regulated, particularly here in Europe, uh, to honor principles that adhere to environmental, social and governance criteria. It's new uh, and it's changing all the time. And like so many things in our lives these days, Jim, it's become very, very political. Apart from the sheer practicalities of how you invest In accordance with these ESG principles, I think we should we could all agree that it is a good idea to be environmentally aware when we are making our investments. For example, all the right wing wing nuts, as I call them, are out of the woodwork this morning, saying that one of the reasons, and some of them even saying it's the reason why SVB failed, was because it allocated a large amount of money to ESG issues, um, which of course is a complete nonsense; it's absolute rubbish. In fact, what this does is that it emphasizes the G in ESG and asks governance questions. And investors should, be, should have asked these questions. Jim, would you be astonished? Would you fall off your chair in surprise if I told you that one story that's doing the rounds this morning is that Silicon Valley Bank did not have a chief risk officer for most of last year?
2: Yeah, uh, I read that. It's extraordinary.
1: Yeah, and they did announce a new one on January the 3rd. It then disclosed on March the 3rd, just gone, that its previous chief risk officer did step down in April 2022. Now, if that doesn't at- attract, you know, the regulators getting all over them like a rash, then I, I don't know what is. Um Why did the chief executive, and this is a question, I am not ascribing any bad motives or any kind of wrongdoing here. I don't want my learned friends getting on my back. But there is a story during the rounds that the chief executive, that Gregory Becker guy that I mentioned earlier on, sold a lot of equities in SVB um, last month. The FT is reporting this morning that on February the 27th, Becker sold $3.6 million of the bank shares at $287. The last time they traded was at $106. And Janet Yellen has told us that the next trade is going to be at zero. In other words, that equities have been Wiped out. You know, there are lots of flags that a proper governance process should have raised, and that if you were an investor, you should have been very worried by these sorts of things. So, this, I think, has lots of different strands, many of which have yet to emerge. The main point for me, I think, in all of this, apart from the regulatory failure that we've both talked about, is that you and I have both said, to the point of repetition, to the point where some of our listeners might have actually started to yawn, several, several podcasts over the course of the last year, is that all of these rises in interest rates, very well aimed at inflation, quite appropriately aimed at curing the inflation demon, risks a financial accident. The central banks risk breaking something, the words that you and I have both used. And the question arises now, Jim, has something been broken? And do we have now the central banks absolutely caught in a cleft stick between a rock and a hard place, between the Scylla and the Charybdis, all of those cliched metaphors. On the one hand, they want to raise interest rates a lot more because the inflation demon hasn't been slain at all, as far as we can tell. And in our last pod, we talked particularly about how the labour market if you want to generate job losses in the labour market, you're going to have to have a whole load of more interest rate rises. On the other hand, this cleft stick that they're in, this dilemma that they're in, they've now got a mini nascent brewing, we don't know how big financial crisis. And the way in which central bankers deal with crises is that they cut interest rates. So they've got two forces acting on them now, one to raise interest rates, one to cut interest rates. And so Today, we've had interest rate expectations, because you can measure this from financial market activity, have been all over the place, but have been falling. And uh, what does this mean?
2: Yeah, I mean, Chris, you'd have to say the response from Janet Yellen at the Treasury and from the Federal Reserve in terms of those two policy implements they put in place to deal with this problem, that is indicative that both the Treasury and the Federal Reserve really haven't a clue how bad this could get um, and but they are obviously really fearful that it could develop into a serious situation of contagion uh, that we lived through back in two thousand and eight two thousand and nine it 's all well and good to say, well, listen, banks are much better capitalized now than they were back then. Uh, they will be able to deal with significant losses if they were to occur from their capital basis, but at the end of the day. Um, I don't think we can quite believe that palaver at the moment. And um, as I say, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury clearly are really, really concerned about this and really do not have a clue as to how bad it might get. So they're trying to put in place very, very stringent um, insurance measures, um, not literally insurance measures, but some are to try and address this problem. Uh, I guess the other Key issues will be what is the Federal Reserve going to do this month with interest rates? Um, it was virtually nailed on that a half percent increase would be delivered because Jay Powell has pretty much told us that he was going to um up the ante on interest rates again and move away from the small increase of a quarter back to a half percent. I saw this morning Goldman Sachs in the United States has revised down its interest rate forecast for March, it now believes that the Fed will do nothing, having previously believed it was going to do a half percent. So that's that's one thing. And I think it's clear now that for the Federal Reserve, increasing interest rates in this sort of environment of intense uncertainty could be a really, really risky thing to do um, and could be nuts in many ways for the financial system. But the second and I think the more interesting point is what does it mean for the European Central Bank this Thursday. Um, The European Central Bank has told us that rates are going to go up by a half percent in March. And when the ECB came out and specified a half percent increase, um, I think the two of us were a bit incredulous that a central bank could could come out and be so specific about what it was going to do with interest rates um, a month down the road, given how uncertain the whole global environment is in any event um, ever before this SVB crisis erupted. So um, if you were Christine Lagarde this Thursday, would you deliver the half percent increase in European interest rates?
1: Emphatically not. I would not do that. I think she's going to. Obviously, I don't know. Um, But if she does, I think it would be a mistake. I think the German bond market, for instance, is telling her it would be a mistake. German 10-year yields this morning, Jim, are down 31 basis points. That's a huge move. The five-year is down 40 basis points. The two-year yield is down 54 basis points. Those are interest rate expectations changing dramatically. Those are big, big moves. As Bloomberg said, we're seeing moves in bond markets that we haven't seen since the financial crisis. And that's telling central banks, be careful, be very, very careful. We don't know if there is another problem out there, uh, but we don't know. And the fear all along for the past year is that there are problems waiting in the weeds of the global financial system, global financial architecture, that mean that when you put interest rates up in the way that you are, we totally understand you're doing it for inflation. But interest rates affect other things. They don't just affect inflation. You've got to remember that you also have a mandate for financial stability, as well as a mandate for keeping inflation under control. Sometimes that mandate is implicit rather than explicit, but there we go. Central banks, at the end of the day, are supposed to preside over a stable financial system, whether they're mandated or not. And we've already had some pretty serious accidents caused by higher bond yields. We had back in September of last year, the bizarrely, the the UK pension fund industry nearly blew itself up because of actions that it had taken previously in government, supposedly ultra-safe assets. Remember, as I said earlier, we're talking about stuff going on in areas of the market that are not esoteric, that are not complicated. It doesn't involve massive use of incredibly complicated derivatives. Pension funds bought an awful lot of UK government bonds, admittedly in a leveraged way, which was a rather naughty, it has to be said, but it was about government bonds, the ultimate risk-free asset. And lo and behold, that blew up in their faces, in the face of Kwasi Kwarteng's first budget. And so the rise in bond yields nearly took down the UK pension fund industry. It did take down a UK prime minister. And now it's taken down a significant chunk, well, a a reasonably significant chunk of the US banking system with it, and has caused all sorts of other things to go on. You talk about them insuring all deposits. That means that that $250,000 deposit insurance limit is out the window. They've now effectively insured all deposits. What consequences is that going to have? So we don't know if there is another accident. We all hope that they're isn't going to be another accident and if you had reason to believe and the central banks of course will have far more information than me if you have reason to believe that there aren't any more accidents out there waiting in the weeds of the financial system then go ahead and raise interest rates focused on inflation if that's what they're doing then i wish them luck and i hope that they succeed i sincerely hope that they succeed uh, but the, the 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 thing that i th- think will happen and this is subject to change and by the time we do our next podcast jim i think it will change I think the end result of all of this is that they're going to have to really slow down, if not actually stop, but certainly slow down the pace of monetary tightening and ultimately have to accept that all they can get inflation down to is something like 3 to 4% and that the 2% inflation targets are for the foreseeable future out the window because the stability of the financial system has to take precedence over the inflation targets. They've got to, they've got to make a choice. If they choose to pursue with alacrity their inflation targets, then they are going to take risks with the financial system. If they're going to worry about the financial system, on the other hand, they've got to let their inflation targets lapse. That's what I think.
2: Yeah, I I wouldn't disagree with you. I would strongly suspect Jay Powell will be on the phone to Christine Lagarde this week, um, giving her some of his views on what the ECB should do with rates. I, I think a rate increase would be a stupid thing to do in the current environment. Chris, Um, th- there's there's so many threads to this SVB situation. Um, and I hope, certainly I hope I haven't confused um, listeners in terms of explaining, trying to explain at least what's going on with the balance sheet and why the bank got into so much difficulty. But I think it's clear, I'll speak for myself certainly and say, we really don't have a clue at this stage As to how this situation is going to materialize. It's hugely uncertain. There are obviously huge risks. And um, I think it would take a brave individual to suggest at this point that there will not be further bank collapses or similar issues over the coming weeks. I I think we need to be
1: clear, Jim. We don't know. We just simply don't don't know. know. We have all along warned that we worried without knowing that there would be a financial accident somewhere in the system as a result of rising interest rates and rising bond yields. And it's now happened two or three times. And we're worried without any knowledge that it may happen again. And we sincerely wish the central bankers luck in trying to get their arms around this issue. But they've now got two very, very big things to worry about today. Whereas last week, they seemed only worried about inflation. Now they've got to worry about inflation and financial stability, and how they square that circle, God only knows. Um, it, it it reminds me of the comments also that we've made about forecasting. Jim is is that we we always say, somewhat tongue in cheek, don't do it, but it's, it's very important to have a view of the future. Forecasters often say quietly, it's it's much easier to talk about something happening. Uh, in a contingent way and say, well, we worry that this is going to happen. And we're pretty sure, actually, that this is going to happen without be- being certain about it. But we don't know when. And there's, so there's always something uh, out there that we we worry about, that we think there's a high probability attached to it, but really we can't date. And this financial accident is a prime example of that. I'm still as worried, if not more so than I was, that the central banks are going to break something and that something is going to crawl out of the woodwork in the weeks and months ahead. Um, but it behoves us not to join in the pylon that central, that uh, social media did over the weekend. And one suspects that some, some corners of social media were actually trying to whip up a crisis. We are not in that game at all. We are simply calling it the way that we think. And that is to say that we're extremely worried, sympathetic to the dilemmas that central banks actually have, but they are caught in a hell of a dilemma.
2: They are Chris. Uh, before I wrap up, at least just to bring it closer to home, you know what does it or might it imply for Ireland, the Irish economy, the public finances? Um, as as far as we know, and looking at the balance sheets of the Irish banks, uh, they do appear to be in a strong solvency position and in a strong liquidity position. Um, famous last words, I guess. But you know, the, the the regulation of the Irish bank system appears to be in pretty stringent over recent years. So a banking crisis here doesn't appear likely, in my view. Famous last words. No,
1: I agree, Jim. Um, I think, there's, for example, there's no reason for you or I to take our money out of any Irish banks today, none whatsoever.
2: No. no. Then the other issue would be what it means for technology. You know, we've been going through a significant correction in the global technology sector, Over the last 12 months, and we've seen all the job layoff announcements, Um, certainly the whole venture capital funding of startup technology companies um, has slowed significantly. You would see it actually grounding or grinding to a halt over the coming months. What does that mean for the technology sector here in Ireland? Um, It's not, it's not good news. Okay. I think you will probably see more job losses than would have been previously forecast. Um, But that hasn't been. And still isn't a huge concern for me in terms of the Irish economy, because I think a lot of those technology workers, as we've discussed before, will be soaked up by other sectors of the economy that has been unable to compete with the tech companies for tech workers over the last three or four years, particularly. Um, I think the, the second implication of global technology difficulties for Ireland is a more serious one. It's the impact it has on corporation tax receipts, Because we've often discussed uh, every month, virtually, when the exchequer returns come out, that every time we see these multinational companies in the States announcing good results, we smile and rub our hands and say that is going to be reflected in the Irish exchequer tax returns in the next return. Okay, and that's that's obviously been the case. But if those companies um, are now increasingly getting into more trouble, uh, profitability under pressure, Um, inevitably it is going to impact, one would have thought, on the corporate tax take here. So I guess from the perspective of fiscal prudence, uh, we need to be looking very carefully at that portion of corporation tax receipts from the tech sector that now look increasingly vulnerable following the events of the last week.
1: Yeah, I think it's important that we don't over-exaggerate the issues that we face there. Um, I think at best this is neutral for the tech sector, I think it's probably more reasonable to say that in a broad sense, the cost of capital and the availability of capital for startups is going to get harder as a result of this, that the tech sector generally, its funding will become somewhat tighter. Um, that means other things being equal, that its growth rate will be lower. Um, it might act, There actually might actually be less startups. Some startups might go under. But the actions that the authorities have taken, I think, Will minimize those effects. So it won't be huge. I think only if it ripples out further and we get more accidents. But uh, as you say, as you said right at the top of your, your remarks there, Jim, it's not good news for the tech sector. There's nothing good in this for the tech sector, certainly not in the short to medium term.
2: Absolutely. Listen, Chris, we'll talk again later in the week. Um, I feel this is going to be an evolving story.
1: Yes, and it could well be that by the end of this week, it's all blown over. And certainly our sentiments will be, I think, that we hope that it does blow over very quickly and that we can get back to talking about inflation and interest rates. But I suspect that there are some more stories to come out of the woodwork on this one before we can reach that conclusion. But hit fingers, we'll end this with a fingers crossed moment, Jim, OK?
2: Yeah, I remember being in San Francisco the weekend that... Um Bear Stearns collapsed and it was Patrick's weekend. So
1: yes. <laughs> there is a nominous sign. Let's look forward to the Grand Slam match on the next Patrick's weekend. Cheers, Jim. Indeed. And that we can get back to talking about inflation and interest rates. But I suspect that there are some more stories to come out of the woodwork on this one before we can reach that conclusion. But hit fingers we'll end this with a fingers crossed moment, Jim, OK?
2: Yeah, I remember being in San Francisco the weekend that um, Bear Stearns collapsed and it was Patrick's weekend. So yes. there's
1: a nominous sign. Let's look forward to the Grand Slam match on the next Patrick's weekend. Cheers, Jim. Indeed.
2: You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. Hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated.
1: only from Rustolium